بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Alhamdulillah, this is lesson six in module 10. So we'll probably be finishing this next week, oh, probably next week, uh, for the first section of module 10, which deals with the diseases of the heart. That's what we've been focusing on for the past few weeks, because as we said before, in the Farda'in concerning Ihsan, or purification of the heart, we focus first on takhliya, or getting rid of the bad, and then we talk about the tahliya, or adorning with the good. And last week, I intended to speak about two or three different diseases of the heart. But we took the entire session last week on riya, or showing off, because that is the most detailed of these diseases, and it made sense to finish it and it alone and not rush through the other ones. So some of them have shifted around a bit. Um, so someone messaged me about one of them missing in the slides. Don't worry. They're not arranged in any particular order. The book that we're using as the reliance, the mainstay, Matarotul uh, Qulub, arranges them alphabetically. So that's the only reason why we have this order. Otherwise, they're not in any particular order. So, moving along, after Riyab, uh, Imam Muhammad Mawlud talks about the next disease, which is relying on other than Allah Ta'ala. Now, what do we call reliance on Allah? What's the word in Arabic? Tawakkul. So, tawakkul means trust in Allah Ta'ala, reliance on Allah Ta'ala. The opposite of that is not relying on Allah Ta'ala. So here Muhammad Mawlud rahimahullah says, fear of and desire for other than my Lord contradicts absolute trust in him. So notice how he's talking about tawakkul and he links it to fear and desire. So that's, that's important because the contradiction of tawakkul plays out in the areas of fear and the areas of desires. He says, fear of and desire for other than my Rabb contradicts absolute trust in him. The origin of both of them, and I seek refuge in the mighty from every disease, is lack of certainty. So, He's talking about tawakkul as a disease, the lack of tawakkul as a disease of the heart, and he's putting it in two contexts. The first context is the person who is so struck with fear of someone, or they are so reliant on them for their needs because of desire for what they have, that they lack proper trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, why would they have that excessive fear towards someone or that excessive desire for something someone has where they're putting their trust in those people instead of Allah? 
He says it's because of a lack of certainty. So let's, let's go back a bit. The belief of a Muslim is لا نافع ولا ضار إلا الله That there is no one who can bring benefit and there is no one who can bring harm except for Allah Ta'ala. Since Allah Ta'ala is al-nafir, the only one who can bring benefit, our desire, our seeking of things that we desire and want and need, are unto Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because He is al-dar, the only one who can bring about harm, nothing else in creation can, we attach our fears in avoiding the things we fear, we attach ourselves to him in escaping those things that we fear. Because he is al-nafi'in al-dar. But if we don't have that certainty, then although we do believe that Allah is al-nafi'in al-dar, we sometimes treat people as if they are actually nafi'in al-dar. Now we know that's not true, but that knowledge is often just intellectual. You know, you intellectually know as a Muslim that in the big picture, no one can bring benefit or harm except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No Muslim is going to believe that anyone can bring benefit or harm besides Allah. But we often act as if that is not the case. We often act as if there are people who can bring benefit and harm besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because we have a lack of yaqeen, in the reality of la nafi' ala dar illallah, we may put our trust in people excessively to the point that it becomes haram. Now, does that mean you can't rely on anyone? Like, I rely on you to show up tomorrow for our appointment, or I'm relying on you to come and help me paint my house. That doesn't contradict this, right? He's talking about a very uh, specific context in which a lack of reliance on Allah Ta'ala is a disease of the heart. So moving along. Uh, he says in the poem, what is prohibited from the two is that which prevents an obligation from being fulfilled. So a lack of tawakkul that causes a person to neglect something that is wajib. Right? So this is the person who is so fearful so lacking in trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they do not fulfill a right. Okay, we can give two common examples. They are so afraid of being seen in public, they're so afraid of quote-unquote Islamophobia that they would rather let the time of prayer run out than to be caught praying anywhere in a public space. Does that sound familiar? There are so many people who do that. They will miss the prayer. They'll wait till they get in their car and go home and pray it at home, even after the time has passed, because they were too afraid to pray in public. And they may deceive themselves and say, oh, you know, I'm afraid. Are you really afraid? If you're really, really afraid, then why are you shopping? If you're really afraid, then why are you walking about with the people and shopping and buying this and that? If you're really afraid, you would leave that place, right? So what's the solution? I mean, obviously, a person who is praying in public because the time is in 
they may not be comfortable praying in a public place where everyone's watching them, and you want to find a place where you can be alone, maybe park at the back of the parking lot, all the way at the end, you know, pray on the side of your car. But the point is, if a person's fear of other people is so strong that they avoid fulfilling a wajib, then this means they are lacking in trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or if they are so afraid of poverty that they refuse to pay their zakat, this is a fear of something other than Allah that indicates a lack of trust in Allah ta'ala. Right? So notice here, he's not talking about general feelings of trust. He's talking about lacking trust to a point where it affects what you do or don't do. Something that's very concrete. You either pray or you don't pray. You either pay your zakat or you don't pay it on time. That's the first one. So a lack of tawakkul that causes one to neglect an obligatory act. Or, he says, a lack of tawakkul that causes one to do something haram. So they're so lacking in tawakkul that they get involved in the haram. Because in their mind, if they don't get involved in that haram, they're ruined, right? This would be a person who's earning haram money or stealing because of, you know, they have anxieties about risk, right? They let that anxiety and fear of poverty drive them to do something haram or leave something that's an obligation. That is where it's prohibited, that to have this uh, relying on other than Allah. Now he says that the root of all of this is lack of certainty. The lack of certainty regarding who is really in control. And the ulama say that when a person is lacking this yaqeen, that Allah is the bringer of benefit and harm only, it leads them to unhealthy levels of fear of others, fear of creation. Now, not all fear is equal. Some fears are natural. And some fears are unnatural and indicate a lack of tawakkul, right? So the ulama say that fear of creation is blameworthy when it prevents one from fulfilling what is wajib or causes them to do what is haram. It's also blameworthy, they say, when it causes one to fear what is not feared conventionally. Yeah, it's something that's not feared conventionally. So if a person, for example, let's say they're afraid of a lamb, they're afraid of a kitten, they're afraid of uh, a six-month-old baby, you know, they're deathly afraid of a puppy. Is that a conventional fear? Is that a natural fear? It's not. Because adatan, conventionally speaking, that those things are not, uh, reasons to fear. They don't harm us, they don't bring any reason for us to fear them. Uh, as far as other things are concerned, like snakes or lions or scorpions and the like, then that is a permissible fear because it's rooted in our survival instinct. It is in that survival instinct of human beings to be afraid of snakes. Have you ever happened on a snake? You just see it all of a sudden, right? It's some primal fear that human beings have of snakes. There's something about them. 
If you see the snake and then you immediately have fear and you jump back, that is a survival response. That is rooted in your survival instinct. That's a natural fear. If a lion just walks into this room, you would have reason to be afraid and get up and run away, right? Because that's rooted in your biology, your natural survival instincts. But if a puppy just walks in the room and a person is screaming and running and jumping on the table as if they've seen a tiger, something's wrong. There's something there. And this is blameworthy, but it's not the same thing as doing something haram or leaving something wajib. And that could be tied into some kind of phobia based on some early childhood experience. Blameworthy, but it's not the same thing as doing something haram or leaving something wajib. And that could be tied into some kind of phobia based on some early childhood experiences or anxieties, and they would need to get that treated, right? And then there's variations here. You know, some people are afraid of elevators. Some people are afraid of heights. You know, and to some extent, these are natural fears. It's just they get exaggerated because of past experiences or anxieties. So he's not, he's not casting a really wide net here. And he's really casting it narrowly by saying, well, if your lack of tawakkul causes you to neglect a wajib, or do a haram, that is a blameworthy lack of tawakkul in Allah Ta'ala. If your lack of tawakkul causes you to neglect something recommended, or do something makruh, or do something that's maybe blameworthy because it's not rooted in reality, it may not be haram, but it's, you know, it depends on what it is. So this is a very precise way of defining it. Now, what is the cure for that? Uh, well, the cure is uh, going back to what he said. What is the cause of lacking tawakkul? There's one cause. What is that cause? A lack of yaqeen. So the, call, the cure for lacking tawakkul is to gain yaqeen. And he says the cure for both is to know that there is none who can bring benefit or harm other than him alone. So the theoretical cure is to have that yaqeen that certain knowledge that Allah Ta'ala is the only one in charge. There are some practical cures, but it's going to depend on the cause of anxiety, right? So let's say a person's afraid of elevators. Well, how would they treat that phobia? They would, maybe they seek professional help and that person helps them acclimate to the elevator, you know, looking at pictures of elevators and then seeing an elevator, then getting closer to one, but not going in. And then putting it, going inside and stepping out, and then eventually they're in it and they're going up and down. You know, that's something beyond the scope of this class, but that would be a practical cure for someone who's suffering from those kinds of anxieties. Out, and then eventually they're in it and they're going up and down. You know, that's something beyond the scope of this class, but that would be a practical cure for someone who's suffering from those kinds of anxieties. But theoretical, just because we say theoretical doesn't mean it is lacking value to the compared to the practical. Because developing yaqeen, strengthening your certainty in Allah Ta'ala, that is one of the comprehensive cures for so many of these diseases. Such that you can really call it a tiryaqul akbar, or the, the great antidote that cures so many other illnesses. Right? Now the next one, this one is a tough one. And he titles it, Displeasure with the divine decree. Right? Displeasure with the 
qada, the divine decree. He says displeasure with the divine decree occurs when one resists Allah, the majestic and exalted, in what he has decreed. For instance, saying, I did not warrant this happening to me, or what did I do to, to deserve this suffering? Right? Now, this disease is often hidden in the heart. But then sometimes it goes from the heart to the tongue, where a person is harboring discontent with the, the qada of Allah, his decree, and then they manifest it on the tongue by the, the way they speak. What did I do to deserve this? Why is God testing me with this? Uh, I didn't deserve this. I didn't warrant this happening to me. Why me? You know, these are all expressions of sakat, of displeasure with the decree of Allah Ta'ala. Sometimes it's hidden in the heart and unexpressed on the tongue. Other times it's on the tongue. Now, the challenge with this disease is that when people hear it for the first time, they often get confused. And that is because they hear the word qada, which means the, the, the divine decree, what Allah decreed to happen to someone. They hear pleasure with a divine decree versus displeasure with a divine decree. And they get confused about what, well, what is pleasure with a divine decree? What does that entail? And we'll clarify this here by looking at what is the opposite to it, and what does not contradict pleasure with the divine decree. So if displeasure with the divine decree is haram and a disease of the heart, what is the thing that cures it? It's developing the opposite, and the opposite is having satisfaction and pleasure with the divine decree. But what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that if la qadar Allah, someone slips and falls down and hurts their back, that they don't feel pain? That they don't say ouch? That they don't cry if they lose a loved one? Is that what it means to be pleased with the degree of Allah? That's not what it means. Because the ulama are very careful to point out that there are two things at play here. Number one, is the qada, right? The divine decree itself, and then the maqdi, the thing itself, or the object of divine decree, right? So, for an example, qada, Allah decrees that you get sick, right? You come down with COVID or the flu or hay fever, whatever. Okay, that is the qada of Allah. He decreed that you get sick, right? That's his qada. The maqdi is the experience itself. It's the feeling sick, right? So a person gets COVID. It's the qada of Allah. Allah willed it. The maqdi is the experience of that qada, the thing itself, the object that was decreed, the feeling sick, the fever, the pain, all of that stuff that goes along with being sick, uh, soreness, and so on. We distinguish between these two. Why? Because the obligation is for us to have satisfaction with the qada, and it is not an obligation 
for us to have satisfaction with the maqdi. You don't have to be happy that you're sick. You don't have to be happy with the pain. You don't have to be happy with the feeling of getting a shot. Right? But you have qada, you have satisfaction with the qada, the decision. Not the experience of the decision. You can feel pain. You can say, ouch. You can feel sad. Right? Let's explain that some more. And I want to bring you the words uh, of one of the great imams in our history. Imam Shihabuddin al-Qarafi, rahimahullah. Imam Shihabuddin al-Qarafi is a great uh, Madiki scholar of Egypt. And he has a very wonderful book called Kitab al-Furuq. It's in two volumes where he talks about the differences between things that are often paired together. Like what's the difference between al-birr wa taqwa? What's the difference between uh, al-qada wa al-maqdi? Right? So he says that he notes the difference between qada and maqdi, being content with the thing decreed and being content with the decree itself. The question is, are you required to be happy and satisfied with everything that happens to you, including the quote-unquote bad things? The answer is no. You're happy with or you're satisfied with Allah's decree because you believe He doesn't make mistakes. And there's a wisdom behind everything. But that doesn't mean that you don't feel a little bit of suffering. Right? Doesn't contradict. So he, he notes the difference by saying that you can liken it to a doctor who tells a patient that their condition requires a very bitter medicine or the amputation of a limb. If the patient says to the doctor, your treatment plan is a bad idea. Give me something else. This is displeasure with the decree of the doctor. But if, well, and this person may get angry with the doctor, they may start shouting at the doctor and say, you don't know what you're doing, you know. You, you, let me talk to a higher authority. I want a second opinion. Right? They're angry at the doctor for what the doctor has said about their condition. Right? On the other hand, if the patient says, this medicine is bitter, it's nasty, or this hurts, this treatment is painful. What they are expressing displeasure with is not the doctor. They're expressing displeasure with the experience of the treatment itself. There's a big difference, right? You go to the doctor, let's say a person has, let's say they have, uh, I don't know, we have doctors here. Let's say you have back pain, okay? And the doctor says, you have to get this or that treatment. The treatment hurts. You feel pain at the treatment. You're not happy about the pain itself. But are you angry with the doctor? You're not angry with the doctor. You, you, you know that's the treatment of the doctor. You're pleased with the decision of the doctor because he knows best. You're still happy with the doctor because he did his job. He treated you. But you still feel pain from the treatment. And you're not really happy about you know, being sore, being bedridden, and so on. But that doesn't translate into you being upset with the doctor. Right? So this is the analogy he gives. He says, the doctor 
knows already that it's going to hurt the patient to get the limb amputated or to give him the shot or whatever. The doctor already knows it's going to hurt the patient. And the doctor is not going to be upset if the patient feels that pain. And if they express, you know, some anxiety about the, the feelings that they're going through, the, the pain and the suffering, because it's not going back to the doctor, it's going back to the experience of the treatment itself. So this is the analogy he gives. So to summarize that, in the Sharia, we are not obligated to be pleased with the things that go against our essential nature. You're not obliged, it's not wajib on you to be happy if you slip on ice and break your leg. Your leg. Right? But what is wajib is that you are satisfied with the one who decreed it, even if you are feeling pain and are unhappy about, you know, having a broken leg or whatever. There's a, there's a subtle difference. Does it make sense? Right? It's important to understand the difference because if you don't clarify this, then you may be led to believe that in order to be satisfied with the qada of Allah, you have to be smiling and happy when something bad happens to you. When a loved one passes away, you can't be sad. Because if you're sad, you're expressing displeasure with the divine decree, therefore you have to be perpetually happy. That's not true. Because Allah Ta'ala has created these emotions within us, they have a healthy expression. Right? All emotions have healthy expressions. And they can go in opposite extremes. They can be suppressed to the point of neglect, or they can be overexpressed to the point of excess. Ifrat and tafurit. Like anger, for example. Anger is totally normal. It's fitri. It's a part of the human instinct. It's a part of our survival instinct. Al-quwwatul ghadabiyya. It's the means by which so much gets done in the world. If it goes to either extreme, it's blameworthy. Right? The person is so lacking in anger that they're not moved to defend themselves or uh, engage in self-preservation or defend the honor and lives of their loved ones. They're so lacking in life and anger, just missing. That's one extreme. Remember Shafi'i, he famously said, مَنَ اسْتُغْضِبَ وَلَمْ يَغْضَبْ فَهُوَ حِمَارٌ He says, whoever is incited to anger but doesn't get angry, they're a donkey. You ever seen a donkey? You, know? you just kind of slap it around, <laughs> this dirty thing, right? You don't want to be donkeys. But on the other hand, if you have excess anger, it's used in an unhealthy way. So the answer to excess anger is not getting rid of anger. It's not removing it entirely. It is bringing it into balance. So we have human instincts and we have natural responses to things like pain, whether it's physical pain to our bodies or emotional pain at loss or grief. And feeling those things is completely natural. So feeling those things does not contradict satisfaction with the decree of Allah. What contradicts satisfaction with the decree of Allah is feeling that somehow, uh, oh, I don't deserve this, 
Why would God do this to me? This must be some kind of mistake. The wrong decision was made about what is happening to me. Right? Now, on one level, that could be true if you're being oppressed. Right? But that's on the human level. We're talking about looking at the big picture. Who decreed this? So it's subtle. But if you understand the difference between the qada and the maqdi, you understand that what is prohibited is not uh, feeling pain or loss. It is expressing discontent with Allah's decisions. Right? And we'll, well, for this one, there's a very beautiful quote by Imam Abu Hassan al-Shadiri, rahimahullah. He says, there's a negative quality that invalidates good actions that many people are unaware of. It is displeasure with the divine decree. Allah said, ذَٰلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ كَرِهُوا مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهِ فَأَحْبَطَ أَعْمَالَهُمْ That is because they hated what Allah sent down, and so He invalidated their deeds. Now in the primary meaning of this verse, is, is talking about uh, disbelievers and munafiqoon, who disliked the wahi, the revelation that came down. But anzal, and it to be sent down, it applies to more than just revelation. It also applies to the qada and the qadr, right? The qada, the decree of Allah Ta'ala. So if a person hates what Allah sends down of his qada, he says this can invalidate their good deeds. So that is, again, strengthening yaqeen, that Allah doesn't make mistakes. Strengthening yaqeen that Allah is the only one in charge, uh, that becomes a very powerful medicine in having that satisfaction. Um, so that's the second one. The, the third one will be mostly familiar to all of you because we covered it last week. Now, last week we talked about riyah. Now, what does the word riyah come from in Arabic? Ra'a which is to see, right? So you have eyes and you have ears. If you show off and do something to be seen, an act of worship to be seen by others, that is riyah. But if you do something to be heard by others, it's called sum'a. So most of what we said last week about riyah applies to sum'a. So it's the corollary of riyah. One is for the eyes, one is for the ears. And basically, sum'a, it comes from, it comes from sam'a, which is hearing. And we would translate it as seeking a reputation. Because when you do something to be seen, maybe it's also for reputation, but to be heard, you know, for your, you know, for your fame to spread far and wide, means you come to have a reputation, right? And in Arabic, if you say a person, you know, their, their sum'a isn't so good, it means they have a bad reputation, right? Now, this comes from a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, who says, مَنْ سَمَّعَ سَمَّعَ اللَّهُ بِهِ Whoever seeks out reputation, Allah will expose him on the Day of Judgment. Now, when you hear the Arabic, you see the words repeated. Man samma'a, meaning they do things to be heard by others, to have reputation. Samma'allahu bihi. As a result, 
Allah will make that person have a reputation. Allah will make that person's status heard and known, but that is exposure on the Day of Judgment. So they'll, they'll actually get what they want in terms of being known, but it'll be in an entirely negative way because of exposure on the Day of Judgment. So this is, whatever we said about Riyah mostly applies to Sum'ah. There's a couple of minor differences. Um, sorry for the small print here. Um, here Imam Muhammad Maulud explains where they're different. He says the disease of seeking reputation, Sum'ah, entails informing others of one's acts of obedience after they have been performed free of blemishes. So get the tasawwur of this. Person is praying tahajjud by themselves, at home, sincerely, for the sake of Allah. Is that riyah? No, no one's there. Right? But that sincere action can be ruined by means of sum'ah. Right? This results from some causes of showing off. A good deed becomes corrupted when telling others of it, but should you repent, the deed's goodness is restored. And this is what he says. Now, the person who prays salat, for example, and they're in the masjid, and they're showing off because others are watching them. So they lengthen their standing. They don't move around as much as they were before. They beautify their recitation. You know, they do all these things because others are watching. That is ruining the act in the moment because they're showing off to those people right then and there. Right? So the act itself is corrupted at the start. But Sum'ah, it's a little different because the person, let's say they prayed alone. They prayed to Hajjud. No one was around. They were sincere. Maybe they were weeping in, in deep khushur and, and, and hudur and all of that. But then later on they go talking about it and sharing all the stuff that they do in their tahajjud. You know, I was in tahajjud and you know, I do tahajjud every night, by the way. And I was crying and weeping and this and that. And they're saying all of that to get a reputation to be see, perceived as this MashaAllah, yani, yani, this pious person. But when they did the action, the action wasn't corrupted, was it? It was sincere. But they end up corrupting it uh, after the fact by speaking about it with the intention of gaining a reputation. This is what he says. Um, this could be in salat. This could be in giving money and charity secretly where you share that fact afterwards with people to get a reputation. Uh, it could be any sort of act, act of worship that you do privately, where there's sincerity, but it gets tainted and corrupted by seeking reputation. So Imam Muhammad Mawlud says that it has some of the same motives as Riyah, seeking the praise of other people or avoiding their blame. Now, Notice that what he said in the line here, that the deed becomes corrupted when telling others of it. But should you repent, 
the deed's goodness is restored. First of all, question. Does this mean that if you share any act of worship with anybody, that it becomes corrupted? No. Right? You're, you know, on the phone, you're talking to someone, they called you, and you were in Salat. You call them back. Okay, sorry, I was in prayer. You just shared with them an act of worship that you were doing sincerely 10 minutes ago. Why doesn't that ruin the action? So the, the intention is still there. If you're doing it with the intention of puffing up you know, your ego, mashallah, you know, to get a reputation, that is what's corrupting it. It's not just telling someone about it. Right? And subhanAllah, the Sahaba were very careful about this. In the hadith of Imran bin Hussein radiallahu anhu, in Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, someone had asked, Ayyukum ra'a al-kawkab al-bariha? You know, who, who among you saw that falling star last night? And Imran bin Hussein radiallahu anhu, he says, Ra'aytuhu, wa amma inni lam ukun usalli wa lakinni ludikhtu. He said, I saw it last night, it was late at night, but I didn't see it because I was engaged in salat. But I was stung by a scorpion. So it's a longer hadith about how he got stung by a scorpion. And, but the, the ulama point out this subtlety. Look at how in that moment when he's sharing with the other sahaba, yeah, I saw the falling star, he puts this disclaimer, I wasn't praying. He didn't want to give them the impression that he saw it because he's just up at night praying. Because right? imagine if someone is up and they see it, who else saw the star, falling star? If he said, yeah, I saw it, it may give that person the impression, mashallah, he saw it because he was in Qiyam. He wasn't even in Qiyam, right? So there's levels to this. Allah mentions in Adi Imran. Allah blames people who love to be praised for what they didn't do. That's, a, that's an even worse kind of sumak. It's, like, it's a sumak for nothing, right? They're seeking a reputation and getting the praise of people for things you've done, and then they're seeking praise and reputation for things you didn't even do. You just want to give them the impression that you did it. That's worse. Allah says, don't think that they're, they're, they're going to be delivered from punishment. It's a wa'id, it's a divine threat. So just sharing it isn't itself corrupting the action. It's sharing it with the intention of getting a reputation. He says here, however, uh, because the action was initially sound, because it was sincere, if the person made tawbah for seeking a reputation by sharing their good deeds, and speaking about them, the reward is restored because it was initially sound. It was sound from day one. It just got corrupted after the fact because of seeking reputation, right? Whereas if someone did something, if they were just showing off to be seen by others, that action is corrupted at the very root because it was corrupted in the moment they were doing it. So that's the distinction between riyah and sum'ah. Uh, this is also why the remedy is slightly different. The remedy for riya is slightly different from the, riyah, the remedy for sum'ah. But they also share in some treatments. 
He says, similar to this, are deeds done so that others may hear about them. The one who does this is also considered a seeker of reputation according to those with insight. So what he's saying here is that, okay, we said that riyah is showing off where the person is corrupting the action in the moment because they're doing it right then and there to be seen by others. Whereas sum'ah is usually after the fact. But it is possible for a person to do an act in the moment for reputation and it's like riya, and it's not done after the fact, it's done in the moment. If you do it just so you can be heard, right? I'm trying to think of what an example would be. You know, it could be, it's, it's kind of hard to separate it from being seen because the question is how would they find out? But yeah, conceivably a person could do something reputation to be heard by others and, and no one sees them in the moment. If it's somehow conveyed to them, so anyhow, that's side point. Now, the, the, he doesn't go over the remedies because the remedies are pretty much the same as the ones for Riyah. And it goes back to that fundamental point. Certainty, yaqeen, of who brings true benefit and harm. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not creation. Therefore, you don't seek the praise of people by doing things or seeking to be heard. You don't try to escape their blame by showing off or by seeking reputation. If Allah, you know, gives a person notoriety and fame and they're not seeking it, then that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He does that, right? Imam Abu uh, Abbas al-Mursi, rahimahullah, he once said, the one who is seeking after zuhur, fahuwa abdul zuhur, and they're a servant of being seen and being popular. And the one who seeks khumul, right, to be obscure and hidden, then in some ways they're also a servant of that. But if they are Abdullah, then they are Abdullah whether Allah makes them obscure or makes them popular. It, it is what it is, right? Okay, moving along. Time is it? Okay. So we have two more, I think. Uh, we have false hopes, and then we have superstition. Okay. So false hopes. Um, what is the word for hope in Arabic? I heard another word. Raja. Uh, yeah, the word here is, we're using amal for hope. And for false hopes, we mean tool al-amal, which is really lengthening those hopes. Right? Tool al-amal. And you could call it false hopes. He says it's quick acting poison is extended false hope, which is assuring yourself that death is a long way off. Okay. If you convince yourself that you have another 60, 70 years and that death is a long ways off, then you'll succumb to tulul amal. And that brings with it a lot of negative qualities. Now the ulama say that this disease of false prolonged hopes is linked to tama, which is coveting and craving, things like that. 
So when a person has lengthy hopes, they basically convince themselves, they lie to themselves, that death is a long ways off. This is a delusion. It's a kind of ghafla, or heedlessness to reality. The heedlessness of death. Now, the ulama mention that amal is generally explained as hoping for something that is a long ways off, and that is also a rahmah that we have it. Because if you didn't expect to complete tasks, how would we have civilization? How would anything, any major project get done? Right? If you are not sure if you're going to live for a week, why would you build a house? Why would you go to university? Why would you get married? Why would you do anything? If you knew you only had one week to live, and let's say you're not married, you don't have a house, would you make your top priority buying a house, building a house, getting married, enrolling in university? You would just spend that week in ibadah, in dua, in just dhikr, and preparing for that moment when the angel of death comes and takes your soul. So we don't know when we're going to die. So from one perspective, amal is a rahmah. Because if you didn't have it, then nothing would get done. Right? So it is a rahmah. And because we are khulafa, and we are mustakhlafin, we, we are stewards of the earth, and we are charged as Banu Adam with isti'mar of populating the earth and building civilization. For that reason, we have amal. It, it's there within us, the idea that certain things are long-term and that we do them at a certain pace and it may take even years to complete them, but they're worthwhile, right? So that means that you're assuming that tomorrow will be like today and the day after tomorrow will be like tomorrow and the day after that will be more or less the same and so you plan out your life. So there's a rahmah in that. But like other things that have a proper place, they can go to excess. Just like anger is a part of our natural instinct, it's completely healthy, it can go to excess. Amal is perfectly healthy, asa rahmah, but it can go to excess. When does it go to excess? It's when it becomes false hopes, leading a person to delusion and ghafla and heedlessness and thinking that death is a long way off, which causes them to succumb to certain problems because they think they have a long time. They think they have time to get things right way in the future. So what happens, the scholars say, is that this amal, as it goes to an extreme, it causes a person to be lazy. I'm sure you've all encountered people like this. They, they assume that once they have secured their career and they've put back enough money and they've put the kids through school and they, you know, everything is settled, I'll start going to the masjid and I'll start being a pious Muslim. I'll start praying once I take care of all these things. I'll be the masjid uncle. Right? And it's, I mean, it's the rahmah of Allah that there are people like that and they, they become pious people. And as they become the masjid uncle, they realize that was a huge mistake and they regret it. But that itself is a delusion when a person thinks, I will eventually become pious. Right? You know the story of Yusuf alayhi salam? What did the brothers of Yusuf say when they put him in the well? 
right? After this, we'll be among the righteous people. Once we get rid of him, because we have this jealousy towards him, we have this tension. Once we get rid of him, things will improve between us and our father, and things will smooth out. And then after that, you know, we'll, be, we'll become better. We'll become righteous. That's amal. That's thinking, assuming that you have that, that much time. When a person has that kind of amal, they then procrastinate. They think they have time. They don't prepare for the hereafter. And if, the scholars say, if you're not lazy, if you're not procrastinating uh, with regards to matters of your deen and preparation for the hereafter, then you don't really have false hopes. Like you may plan years in advance for certain things, but as long as that false as long as that hope is not leading you to false hopes where you become lazy and negligent of Allah's commands and you think death is a long way off and you don't prepare for it, as long as it's limited, it's, it's okay. Now he says here that lengthy false hopes generates a lot of negatives. It generates qaswatul qalb or hard-heartedness and indolence regarding obligations. And indolence here, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't care. Because why care now? Because you have all the time in the world, right? And this leads uh, to inroads to the prohibited. You know, it leads them to the haram. You know, why not enjoy the haram now? I'll always make tawbah. I'll make tawbah when I'm in my 60s or 70s, right? That's all based on tulul amal. It also leads to a person neglecting tawbah. They think they'll have time to make things right between them and Allah. They forget about the hereafter. They, they thrust themselves headlong into dunya because they think they have a long time, so you might as well do as much as you can and amass as much as you can now, use the time, and then later, you know, we'll, we'll be good. We'll, we'll, we'll improve things later on. And it causes laziness in the fard. Now, one of the interesting things about laziness and tul al-amal is that it's uh, selective laziness. It's very selective. Last week we talked about, I think it was last week, we talked about, maybe in the Q&A, the issue of an ihtijaj bil qadr, people using the qadr as an excuse. And we said that people who use the qadr as an excuse to neglect obligations and do haram, they're very selective. They don't use the qadr as an excuse to not eat or drink. They only use it as an excuse to avoid haram, meaning to, to do haram or to neglect obligations. Uh, likewise, with tulul amal, it seems to all connect to matters of the hereafter and not to matters of dunya, right? You don't find a person saying, well, I have a long life, so I won't bother with anything of dunya. I have all the time in the world to make money. No, I got to get it now. So they apply diligence and energy to amassing things of the world, but laziness with regards to deen, right? And case in point, person has got all the energy in the world to work overtime, almost kill themselves in the overtime. But when it's time for salat, oh, I'm tired. It's selective laziness. They don't say, I have all the energy in the world for salat, well, I'm, I'm lazy, I don't want to go to work. There, there are probably some people like that, right? But that's usually a lot rarer. So he says here, 
regarding the one who's engaged in preparing for tomorrow or writing works of knowledge, the extended hope is not blameworthy. Right? Look at a book like Fath al-Bari of Al-Hafid ibn Hajar. Right? Multi-volumes. Dozen plus volumes. Do you think he wrote that in one weekend? No, it took years of work. Did he have a guarantee that he would complete that? He didn't have a guarantee. But he continued doing his research and writing and teaching from it and revising it until he completed the entire thing. And what's so beautiful and interesting in the history of Islamic scholarship is that there are a lot of works in our tradition that are half completed, right? So have you ever heard of uh, Sheikh Muhammad Amir Shanqiti. He died in 1973. He was a Mauritanian scholar and he moved to uh, Medina um, back in like the 50s. He wrote a tafsir called Adwa'ul Bayan, the tafsir al Qurani bil Quran. It was a tafsir of the Quran by the Quran. So just using the Quran to do tafsir of the Quran. He didn't finish the book. He died, and I think he died right up to where he wrote the tafsir of Surah Al-Mumtahina. I think right there. And then it was his student, the Qadi of Medina, Muhammad Atiyah Salim, who wrote the tafsir from Mumtahina to Nas. And that's just one contemporary example. There's so many others in the past. They didn't complete their works. But they pursued life as if, inshallah, they'll have time and they just keep going at it. And that's fine, right? And if you didn't have that kind of hope that you could complete it, nothing would get done. Why bother, right? So what's the cure? The cure is very simple. Dhikrul maut. Remembrance of death. Mention of death. When a person remembers death in a true sense, they really assess their priorities, right? So think about if a person were to die in a week, what are those loose ends in their life that need to be tied? Some of those things are practical. Some of those things are financial. Some of those things concern the rights of others, whether it's debts or seeking forgiveness or other loose ends. Or it concerns their own feeling of unpreparedness to meet Allah. So if they think about what happens if they were to die in a week and they feel that they're not prepared, just thinking about that will cause them to shorten those hopes. And they'll still plan things for tomorrow and for next week and next year, but they get rid of the things that are not taking them in the right direction. Right? It helps. So that is uh, a cure. Right? But it has to be real. It can't just be a passing mention or passing rem- reminder. It has to be real reflection. So that is Ulul uh, Amal. Now we come to the last one. I think we have, yeah, we have time, inshallah. Uh, the last of these diseases for tonight is called Tatayur. Tatayur. Now that word tatayyur comes from the word tayyir, which is bird. And in English, we would call this omen-seeking, or even superstition, khurafat, right? 
Now he uses the word tatayur because tatayur is um, an action of the heart that may manifest on things people do, right? And he says, as for omen seeking, it is rooted in ignorance of the fact that the entire affair of this life is Allah alone. So Allah, Allah's alone. It goes back to that principle. Who is the nafi'ah? Who is the dar? Who is really in control? Ignorance of who is really in control drives people to seeking omens and falling into superstitions. That's how he diagnoses it. So what is tatayur exactly? Tatayur in English, we actually call it divination. That's the proper word for it. Uh, we could use superstition as well. It comes from the word tayir, which is bird. And there's an old English word for that too. They call it augury. And it seems like it existed in medieval Europe as well as in Arabia and Jahiliya. And maybe among other cultures too. Where they would get a good omen or a bad omen based on the flight of birds. Kind of like a jahiliya istikhara. Think of it like that. We have istikhara, they have tutayur. Should I get married to that girl? They're thinking. Hmm. They walk outside. If they see a bunch of birds outside and all of a sudden they take flight and fly right, I should get married to her. If they fly left, I shouldn't marry her. They're linking the decision to something that is not, does not have any causal effect in determining whether it's a good or bad thing to do. Right? So that is tatayyur. Imam Muhammad al-Mulud says that it's rooted in jahl. And Imam al-Qarafi says that tatayyur is a negative opinion about Allah in the heart. And tiyara is the action that results from this negative opinion. So what's happening when a person is engaging in superstitions and divination and things like that? There's all sorts of types. Fundamentally, it is based on making decisions, fearing something based on a non-normative experience. So you have these empirical phenomena around us, right? You have basic cause and effect, right? But these things are not causally tied to these experiences of good and bad. What does the flight of birds have to do with whether getting married to this girl is a good or bad decision? What do they have to do with that, right? There's no causal link between what the birds do and whether this is a good or bad decision. There's no link whatsoever. But they've created a link because of superstitions and omens. So you have uh, these things that don't have a causal link. But then you have things that do have causal links. So for example, if you see a rabid dog and you run away, why would you run away? Because there's a causal link between rabid dogs and biting people. There's a pattern, there's a pattern that human beings recognize. When the dog is rabid, it's vicious, it's aggressive, and it's likely to attack and bite someone. Because of that, when we see the rabid dog, we want to get away from it. 
But if you saw a puppy and you thought that this puppy you know, is going to bring you bad luck, is there a causal link between seeing a puppy, having a puppy cross your path or a black cat cross your path and actual bad things happening to you? There's no rabd, adi, there's no causal link between that thing and the other thing. So superstition is when you have these things that have no causal link. Um, Tatayur takes on different forms. You have them here in North America, in Europe, in the, the African continent, in North Africa, in the Muslim world, all over. They take different forms. What are some of the most common forms we have here? Spilling the salt and you toss it over your, is it your left shoulder? Is it your right shoulder or left shoulder? I don't know. Uh, knocking on wood, right? Uh, the 13th floor. Have you, you know, you go to, there's no 13th floor in some buildings. Uh, things like this. You break a mirror, seven years bad luck, right? What about in the Muslim world? What do we have? Hmm? So if I ask you, I may hear ones I've never heard before. I mean, I'm familiar with some, but not all. What, what's that? It's seen as bad luck. Wow. So the belief. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I put a few here. Um, drawing lots. You know, that's, we have some of that here too. You know, tarot card reading, whatever. Drawing lots. You have ramal. You know what ramal is? Ramal is basically they, they have certain bones. And they have certain shapes. Uh, some long, some short. And they shake them and throw them. And based on the pattern of short and long, there's a certain reading you make of that to determine whether this decision is good or bad. There's no causal link between how those bones land, which is completely random, and the actual good or bad of that decision. Um, one of them is randomly opening a page of Quran, right? Because there's no causal link between opening a page of the Quran and coming upon a verse of Rahmah or a verse of Adab and whether this is a good or bad decision. It's not. Right? It's not. So that's not a legitimate way of determining the istikhara. Right? The istikhara stands alone. The istikhara can be confirmed through uh, feelings in shirah al-sadr, ease, doors opening, maybe dreams, but doesn't depend on them. Right? Uh, and there's so many other things. Right? You could think of all sorts of things. But anything that doesn't have a causal link, right? It's not normative. That can be a cause of superstition. Now, dhikr, dua, sadaqa, these are means for good outcomes because we are told about that in Revelation. That by giving sadaqa, one of the, the benefits of sadaqa is that it gives uh, relief in times of difficulty, it 
make thing, makes things easy when a person is suffering or going through some problem. Dua, dhikr, uh, things like that. We find in the Qur'an and the Sunnah mention of these practices that establish that there is a spiritual link between doing these things and good outcomes. Right, so that's not superstition. Now, we negate superstition, but we also believe in the unseen. But we don't link things to the unseen unless they are established through revelation. That's really all there is to it. So, I mean, I don't think this is a huge issue in our community, but it exists with some people. And it takes on different forms. You know, I don't want to be exhaustive here. But that's, that's basically it. And it all comes from this lack of tawakkul. It comes from this lack of certainty. It also comes from looking for signs of good fortune or bad fortune in events that are not connected to anything causal. And it, it shows a basic lack of tawakkul as well. So that's why he includes it here as a disease of the heart. Uh, how do you get rid of it? Tawheed, certainty. Like, that's the cure for so many of these things. And uh, that's, that's it for tonight, inshallah. And I think next week we'll be finishing up with the diseases. Bismillah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.